Sons for everybody? If by everybody you mean me, then yes. <laughs> so listen, I have bad news for you. Uh-oh. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but tonight, right at the end of this podcast, when we're done recording, is daylight savings time. Mm. Oh, that's brutal. And we lose an hour. Oh, Lord. It's not the good daylight savings time. Sweet Lord, preserve us. It's the bad daylight savings time. Well, and let's just remember, too, that in in the last 24 hours, we've been through horseback riding, Mm -hmm. a sleepover, a day-long horse trivia contest that one of us had to go to. The other one did a movie date, a play date, made slime, (laughs) and to boot... I just realized that my pants have been on backwards all day. (laughs) Through all of this? Hey, I walked around that horse trivia contest for a good three hours before I realized my fly was open. Oh! Horse people are very accepting. It's true. (laughs) It's true. It's a good point. Oh, goodness. And now we lose an hour. And now we lose an hour. God help us. Well, let's talk about Locke Lamora. Are you ready? I'm ready. Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. Welcome to episode 43. 43. In this episode, we begin a new book. New book. Woo! So in this episode, we begin Red Seas Under Red Skies. Cover is a big flaming boat. How can you go wrong? How can you go wrong? Big flame and ship. So would you like to cover our spoiler policy? Correct. So I have read these books and Chad has not. Yep. Yep. That's so we would ask that you do not spoil anything past. Uh today we are covering up to but not including chapter three. You got it. So if you run into Chad in the grocery store, see him on Twitter. Mm-hmm. If you're stalking us right now from the bushes. If you're hanging out at the horse trivia contest. Don't yell any spoilers at him. Yeah. Because at the end of the episode, we like to hear his predictions. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the Venn diagram of the 4-H club <laughs> and our podcast listenership is. It's small. I, in I You think, may be the one person in the middle. I think it's like two circles. It might be. Lifted and separated. <laughs> Two beautiful sets of circles. (laughs) So, on our next book club, Mm -hmm. we will be reading chapter three, four, and five. Awesome. Okay. Yes, and there are a few uh, flashback little... Reminiscences. Reminiscences. Thanks for that word, Scott Lynch. Yeah. Interludes (laughs) was easier to say. It was a lot easier to say, for sure. (laughs) But three, four, and five are the chapters we'll be covering next book club. Man, that's good. It is good. can't remember the last time I read three chapters. You're going to like it. Oh, You're going to like it. There's a, it's a nice little narrative arc. I'm not going to give too much away. But. Well, I have to tell you that I have loved the opening of this book. Great. What have you loved about it? Ten so, words or less. <laughs> not really. I'm sorry. 
Have you ever known me to do anything in 10 words or less? Not realistic. (laughs) So that's not going to happen. But I've gotten the impression from a handful of folks that that these next two books are not quite as good as The Lies of Locke Lamora. And I got the impression that this one in particular is not, it is probably the weakest of the books from, from what I've gathered from other people. So I, I went into this one with not a lot of expectation. And man, the opening two chapters I really enjoyed. Awesome. I liked, you know, it begins with like a scene straight out of Reservoir Dogs. Everybody's standing, pointing guns at each other, you know, ship burning in the background. And, you know, the whole creepy scene with the the people in the market, that, I mean, I I liked it. So I've enjoyed it so far. You know, it's interesting. I I think before this reread, I would have been one who said, yeah, Red Sea's not as good as Lies of Locke Lamora. However, on the reread, I am really starting to, I'm really appreciating, especially the two scenes you mentioned, uh, the the scene with the, where the, at the night market, yeah. where the Bonds Magi are like wearing the t- villagers like puppets and mm-hmm. man, that is a well-written, really creepy scene. It really is. Let's not get too. Not too into it. Too into it. But, but again, I, I'm struck by how much I want to see this book on the screen. Yeah, really. The Scott Lynch's books are just really written. Like I can just see it. I can just see it as a movie, and I don't know why no one's done it yet. Like you would barely have to adapt it. I mean, we say it every episode, but it's still shocking. Get on that Hollywood. What the f- are you guys doing? Trying to adapt crazy ass bullshit, but not this one. Quit dancing around with your Hotel Transylvania three or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, so let's let's get on. Do you want to get into the prologue? Yes, the prologue is called A Strained Conversation. Aptly titled. So in this prologue, basically we start, we open on a very tense scene. Jean and Locke are pointing crossbows at two opponents mm-hmm. and trying to talk their way out of a predicament because the opponents have crossbows also pointed at them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at some point, Jean turns his crossbow on Locke and says, you've lost me, Locke. Basically says, I- I've cut a deal with these guys' employer, and, yeah. and you've lost me. I'm turning on you. Yeah. Mwahaha. Yeah. And Locke is saying, what? What the fuck? And that's how we end the prologue. So, question one, mm-hmm. did you buy it at all? No. I-, I think you're meant to wonder, but I I don't think any of us reading this bought for one second that John is actually turning on Locke. It's interesting that it's told from Locke's point of view. And in Locke's mind, though, he's looking for the signal that he would expect Jean to give him to show that he's lying. If it were a ploy. And it's interesting because in the chapters that follow, we are seeing the tension between the two build and build and build. Yeah, and that's pretty much my notes for the the prologue there. There is one other thing I noticed about the prologue is is the burning galleon. Right. Well, how could you miss that? Well, it's, you know, a little bit of a spotlight shown on it. So it's interesting to me because the cover of Red Seas and the Red Skies is a burning ship. Now, the very, I, I looked at that and thought, well, the very end of the last book ends with a huge burning ship. So I'm going to assume 
that that's just kind of like this is not meant to give anything away about the next book. This is, you know, just in reference to the Grey King ship that they burned at the end of the last book. And then we get into the prologue and I'm like, no, there's it's not. God damn, ships on fire everywhere. Everywhere you go, people are burning down ships. It's like they should <laughs> stop making the fuckers out of wood or something. <laughs> Jesus, you know. So I have an, I have some predictions about what's going on with the ship. Ooh. But that is an it's kind of an interesting little mystery, you know, that this starts with. And it's one of the things that we I don't know want to say we criticized the lies of Locke Lamora for, but the lies of Locke Lamora it had to, it just didn't have like that big sort of overarching mystery. You know, and I don't I don't want to put this on par with the Chandrian. Like it's not. But it, it does start us off with a little bit of how did we get here? You know, an interesting kind of uh, way of putting it all together. So yeah, so I, I was excited about the prologue. Awesome. And without giving anything away, there is an overarching mystery that develops at some point if you stick with these books. That's I, I maybe shouldn't even say say that much. You have alluded to as much in the past, so I shouldn't probably even allude. But I'm. It's too a dangerous ex- game you play. I'm, I'm too excited about it. It's a dangerous game you play, Elizabeth. <laughs> it's late and I'm jacked up on Capri Sun. <laughs> Anything could happen. All right, so part one. And I, we have again have a quote at the beginning of this section. Part one is called Cards in the Hand. And the quote is If you must play, decide on three things from the start the rules of the game, the stakes, and the quitting time. Yeah. So that, of course, makes you wonder has Jean reached his quitting time with Locke? Or maybe it makes you, you're supposed to wonder that given the way the last the chapter just ended. Yeah, well, and sort of an obvious allusion to what we get into now, which is card playing and, uh, you know, a medieval fantasy version of a casino, though it's almost more steampunk fantasy version of a casino. Which I dig. Which, yeah, it was pretty groovy. I think it's hilarious that we keep talking about this as like the fantasy version of Ocean's Eleven, and now they are literally robbing a casino. They're in the Vegas the Vegas of this whatever yeah. fantasy world. Yeah, it's like Vegas, except if Vegas, instead of being on an island in the desert, was literally on an island. <laughs> but yeah, I found that to be quite to be quite funny. Yeah, so we begin with Jean and Locke playing a card game against two opponents, female opponent opponents. The point of the game being to get the opponent's so drunk that they can't continue. And once again, we see that women have equal footing in Scott Lynch's world. Right. And these luscious lushes can even outdrink their positively gargantuan opponents like Jean Tannen. Well, to be fair, I believe one of the ladies was described as being of a size with Jean Tannen. She had... So picture that. She had every curve a woman could possibly have. <laughs> you know, come on. <sighs> All right, it's okay. We're moving past that. We're just, it was just, that was just a little. I mean, her nostrils were round. <laughs> the ends of her ears were round. Did you know that her hairs were actually made of tiny little cylinders? <laughs> round. Okay. <laughs> I had to read that a couple times and be yeah. like, what? What does that mean? Like, 
They're trying to say... She's a big round lady, okay? <laughs> Come on, some people just are, are round, all right? Ah, uh, uh, hello. <laughs> I'm a human grape. <laughs> Makes it very hard for me to play cards. <laughs> oh, no, I've lost again. Pour it into my mouth. <laughs> I think what he was trying to say was that she was a tall, voluptuous woman, in which case I think he failed. <laughs> I think he was trying to say she's a big round lady. I think she's a circle. <laughs> I think she's a giant red circle. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> straight, straight out of like a Sesame Street book, you know? Here's, you know, Charlie the Grocer. And there's that round lady who's got no sides and no angles. Are you done? Walking around town with giant ankles. Now are you done? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. Oh. So... Big round ladies nonwithstanding. <laughs> Locke and John are playing a drinking game. Oh, yeah. I was saying, yeah, that's right. That's where they were known. <laughs> I don't quite understand where the money part of this comes in. And not that I really want to get bogged down into the rules of the card game. But, like, they're down, like, 900 Solari. Mm-hmm. And then they end up winning the game. And then somehow they win a giant... Like, did they have, like, I just don't quite understand. Because even if they had won what was in the pot at that time, that wouldn't have caught them up. I don't, you know. So the point of all of it Mm -hmm. was to get the attention of Requin to be invited up. So, okay, let's, let's just kind of like recap what we know here. Mm -hmm. So they're in Telvarar, which Mm -hmm. is Vegas, basically. Vegas on the ocean. Vegas on the ocean. It's Monaco. It is. And they are in what is called the Sinspire, which is the best of all the casinos in Vegas. Fantasy mm-hmm. Vegas. Yeah. So it's like uh, it's like the Luxor. I've never been to Vegas, so I, I I'll have to know. take I, your, I don't know. your word for it. <laughs> it's a really nice, it's a swanky joint uh-huh. run by a guy named Requin. Mm-hmm. And basically, you have to work your way up the levels. You have to impress him somehow to be invited up to the higher levels. And it's taken them two years to work their way up to the, the fifth, fifth level. Yeah, they're on the fifth level. So my impression is that these ladies are the best at this game, oh, this yeah. carousel game. Yeah, so yeah. by beating them, and, and they're being beaten very soundly. They only win by cheating. Oh, by, yeah, yeah. by beating them, they now have the attention of Requin yeah. and are able to be invited up. So it's not really about them netting more money well, but than they, they do. lost. Oh, but they do. But okay. they do, yeah. I, I mean, maybe it's just that that's, maybe they were just putting into the pot the whole time. Right. You know, so maybe, no, no, they were, anyway, it doesn't matter. Like, I know that they, that they, um, they won money as a part of this, but, but how that works doesn't really matter. I just remember thinking, okay. You you won, but you still lost nine hundred Solari. Like, I don't know, but that it doesn't really matter. So this is another one of those. This is another one of those uh, 
chapters where the different parts, they kind of jump around to different areas. So part one is we kind of have the setup of the game. And then in part two, we step out and we get a description of the city. Right. And back in part three, we step back into the to the game. And that's when we learn about their, not tells, there's a word he uses for it. Strapati. Thank you. And just the little games that they play to try to set their their um, opponents off. The little peculiarities, right, that they play. They're picadillos. Picadillo. That's a good word. That's right. Yep. Picadillo. So, <laughs> it's a fun word. Say it again. Picadillo. There you go. It's like an armadillo, but way more uptight about his surroundings. <laughs> See, I was going dirty in my mind, but <laughs> armadillo, that works. Okay. Where, where were you going? I, nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just let them guess. Pickled dildo? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody used the pickled the, dildo. <laughs> how long in the podcast are we? <laughs> We're on pickled dildos already. Not this does very. Not bode well. We are not very far. So, how long do you have to leave it in the brine before it becomes pickled? <laughs> if it's silicone, you have to leave it for a really long time. <laughs> Here we have a collection of ancient pickled dildos. It just seems like that would. Lead to a yeast infection or something. <laughs> I just feel like it wouldn't hold up. So they're playing a game. <laughs> and then then part four, we get into the 18th hand, and this is when they kind of uh, start. This is when they see that, that the little circle starts to wobble and weeble on her little stand, and then she just rolls off. Oh, no, help me. And she's rolling down through the crowds. And then she rolls and rolls in a circle ever tighter and tighter. And then she starts spinning like a quarter that you dropped on the ground. And nobody can pick her up again. That's, so, I mean, that's what I read. That's exactly what you pictured. That's exactly what I read. Okay. So, And then she calls Locke by his real name. So, yes, as they're progressing through this game... The, the point of the game is to basically, the game is over when someone passes out at the table. Mm -hmm. uh, these two ladies are prodigious drinkers, so they never pass out. But somehow, only a few drinks in, Madame Corvalor, big round lady, <laughs> just sacks out. So we know it has something to do with the fact that Locke and Jean were reaching under their jackets the entire game. But we don't know exactly how. But And I didn't catch that. I, I knew... That they it had something to do with the saliva on the cards, but I thought that the whole reaching thing was them trying to communicate through you know through signals. Why well, you don't know yeah. that at this point, but we yeah, learned correct. later yeah, that correct. that's yeah, what yeah. that was all about. Mm -hmm. So, the, but they're approached by Salandri after they win, and they're invited to the next level. Well, I meant I meant that the big round lady calls Locke by his true name, not Locke Lamora, his true name, five syllables. Right before she passes out, the last thing she says is, Blimble Naflaga. And then, pff, 
And I I didn't catch that that was five syllables. Five syllables. All right. So this is like, I'm trying to start like in our last series, the seven words thing that we had running. So now five Mm, syllables. Okay. The last thing Circle Lady said was Blemble Nafliga, and then she was out. So I'm just putting it on the list of possibilities. That's all I'm saying. Okay. There's no bad ideas. All right. Well. There's no (laughs) bad ideas. Okay. So can we talk about the word majordomo? Because it is definitely in my top five favorite words. I, you know, that word wasn't very funny to me <laughs> until just now. <laughs> what? Majordomo? <laughs> if she keeps doing a good job, she's going to get promoted to Colonel Domo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is going to think this is funny. I don't think they will. But, but since when has that stopped us? <laughs> it's just going to roll ahead. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So... Salandri's a majordomo. So this is what happens when we take a week off <laughs> due to due to natural disasters. Oh. We end up getting a case of the sillies. All the stress just comes out. Right. Oh. No, she so So Salandri's kind of a badass. So Scott Lynch is a big fan of uh the dramatic character right i I mean she has half of her face burned off Mm -hmm. she wears a leather mask so she's got the half quaithy thing going on right and then she's missing an arm and it's been replaced with a super elaborate steampunk arm like a knife hand right right that's some badass she gets to be a major domo and have a knife hand major she's a domo Major domo. You're a major domo, dude. Listen. <laughs> Listen, if I had that cool ass hand, I might be willing to forego my own actual left hand. Right? I mean, I don't do anything useful with it. <laughs> anything? Okay, no, you're right. I'm just saying. It's the one that reaches out for the pickle dildo at night. <laughs> Groping in the dark. Okay. Over the line, man. You're being a major domo right now. <laughs> okay. So. So, anyway. All right, back on track. Let's talk about the plot. Let's do that. Let's. So, Locke and John are approached by Salandri and invited up to the next level. And we find out that they've been at this for two years, working their way mm-hmm. up. Yep. And so they walk home and they talk about the next phase of their plan. Mm-hmm. And one quote that I wrote down in this section was that Locke says, drink makes me see funny. The gods make me impulsive. <laughs> Jean is accusing him of being impulsive because he's so drunk. Yeah. So it's the first time we've heard the gods mentioned. And I always put a little pin in that because I think there's always something interesting going on. And part of the overarching mystery, I, I think, probably is going to have to do with that. Yeah, I think so, too. We have, we have a section where they watch a duel. Yeah, I found that to be quite interesting. How so? 
Well, because it's placed so in the middle of so many other things, just so random, and it does not have any relationship to anything else that's going on. And yet, I don't believe it's just there for window dressing. So it tells me that the characters that are involved are people we're going to meet again. Well, either way, they, they kind of see this duel and then they just kind of keep going on. They, they've got the munchies, so they head over to the night market to try and rustle up some grub. And they, they're just kind of walking around there. One thing, did you notice that they're offered uh, one of these new oranges out of Camor, the, yeah, the Sophia orange, orange of Camor? Yeah. That was kind of a nice little callback to Lies of Loch Lamora, obviously, and um, the, the Donia and that had just mm-hmm. invented this new kind of orange. So yeah. that's just, that was just kind of neat. This has been the first part of any of these books where I've started doing the thing where I start looking for these kind of metatextual clues, mm-hmm. like when their names are revealed, Leo Canto and Jerome, and it's, uh, you know, DeFera and Costa. Costa. Yep. So I'm like, okay, what do those words mean in Italian? You know, and there's, there's nothing. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of in Spanish and French and Latin, all these things, but nothing I could think of that comes up to anything, you know. Then they're walking around the gallery, and I'm looking at the things that people offer them, and I'm like, are there any clues in the things people are offering them? You know, it's like shark's eyes and the oranges and these scorpions, and, and I'm, no, there's like, there's, there's, there's nothing that I can figure out. I, I think some of this stuff is just to add flavor to the world. And that's completely fine. I spent way too much time thinking about the food production system of the island and whether, like, and how difficult it must be for them to get things like fresh fruit on an island that size, you know, and how, mostly made of elder glass. Yeah. And how expensive it is. And because it was expensive, you know, I spent way too much time thinking about that stuff and it ultimately led me nowhere. Well, and I think part of it is that it, the setup to this scene kind of lulls you in. They're just wandering around. They're eating pears. Yeah. It's the same old joke where Jean eats the core of the pear just to kind of bother Locke because Locke is like, oh, that's so gross. And then he just kind of eats it to bother him. And yeah. they're kind of going back and forth. And then, and then, the then girl, all of a sudden. The girl calls him Lamora. Yeah. And he was like, what did you hear? And she was like, oh, master, you know, so loyal master. And he was like, what? You know, and you know, they're drunk. And then the next time it comes up, it it can't be mistaken. And it's hella creepy. Hella creepy. So in my mind, all these people speak with like a British accent because... Uh, naturally, it's fantasy. It's fantasy. So therefore, everybody speaks with a British accent. But I, in my mind, I figure that as soon as they are taken over as the puppets for the Bonds mages... Uh-huh that they suddenly have these really flamboyant southern a- southern accents. Southern accents? We're coming for you, Lock Lamora. <laughs> you come for a bondsmaid, you gonna pay. And everybody else says, oh, yeah, you gonna pay. No, that makes it less creepy. I think it makes it more creepy. Well, we'll just leave each to our own imagination. Well, And then the little girl comes out, and the little girl is the one who... They use as kind oh, of the so creepy. It was a good scene. It was a good scene. It was really well written. I love the way 
the little girl would say something and then like a chorus they would echo and kind mm-hmm. of slightly add on to the meaning every time. Mm-hmm. It was pretty groovy, you know. So it's interesting to then so we, so we realized that Locke and John did not get away with chopping off the fingers of the falconer, obviously. Which we didn't think they would. At the same time, we're not seeing the kind of reaction that we might have expected hearing the stories of previous acts from the Bonds Magi yeah. when they've been crossed, which has been you can expect to be killed and have your family killed and everything you've touched burned to the ground. We're, we're not seeing that either. They easily could have killed John and Locke at this point. Oh, yeah. And they claim that they are leaving them alive to wonder what's going to happen. It's like the slap bed. It is like the slap bed. It's like the slap bed from How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, I love... So explain that. So... If you haven't watched How I Met Your Mother, many people haven't. There was an episode in there, or I think it was, I think it happened over a series of episodes, actually. Oh, yeah. Where they they made a bet, and one of the characters got to slap the other character five times. But the deal was th- that he never knew when it was coming. It's brilliant. It was, it was brilliant. And that's exactly what they're doing. This is a big, huge slap bed except you know with your life right it's just it's interesting that they're they don't actually do anything to them you know at this point yeah that didn't strike you as no oh, oh it struck me it struck me it also and there was a part of me that was like do i believe this and i still haven't answered that it's early in the book so i'm like eh, okay I sort of feel like as soon as they find them, they would dispatch them, especially since they know Jean Tannen's name. Right. And so Jean wants to leave. As soon as the Bonds Magi kind of poke their heads up and they realize that they're being watched and followed, Jean's like, I need to leave. Like, I can't be around you. He was profoundly affected by his experiences being basically used as a giant sock puppet by the falconer several times yeah yeah and he fears that he's gonna hurt lock very uncomfortable it's extremely uncomfortable you know where they put that hand (laughs) same place you put your pickle dildo now you're crossing the line i might have crossed the line listen i don't think it's gonna hold up i I don't think it's gonna the joke or the pickle dildo I just don't think Stop it's... Stop me! Oh, my God! Okay. All right, I'm good. I'm good. It's all right. Do any of our friends listen to this podcast? I hope not. Or relatives? Who? Anywho, Locke tells Jean that's... You can't leave. We're in this together. And he also mentions how patient Jean was and that he never left him after everything that Locke put him through in Velverazzo. Yeah. So that's kind of a setup to what we learn in the reminiscence, which is yeah. called the Kappa of Velverazzo. Yeah, and this was not as enjoyable. I mean, this first chapter was phenomenal. One of the best opening chapters for a book. Like, really, like, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. So this one was not quite as enjoyable, but I still liked it a lot. So we learned that Locke is a wretched drunk. They fight. And Locke manages to be such a prick that he even chases off Abelius. So he's out of the picture. And I really think it's all just sort of stage setting that's trying to convince me about Jean betraying Locke at the end of the novel. 
What's a or in that bit of prologue that? scene. I mean, so we're kind of we kind of go back. So it's we've gone forward in time two years, and now we go back to seeing just Jean a week Locke, after the last book, right? A week after they've escaped, mm-hmm. and I think it it might be a little bit of stage setting, but I also think it's a little bit of showing that they didn't get out of this scot free. You know, we saw Locke at the end of the last book escape from a series of increasingly unlikely circumstances. He he escaped being drowned in a barrel of horse piss, stabbed, beaten, uh, being locked in an elder glass tower. He was able to leap from it. He a series of really incredible feats. And now we kind of see that he didn't just skate away from that. So he's got to go through his like emo phase. Well, right? not only that, but they didn't really have an opportunity to to grieve very much because they were so focused and obsessed on vengeance. Right. So you know? I think that this just shows Locke's humanity. Yeah. And, yeah. and the way he's dealing with trauma. Yeah. And and the fact that there's they've achieved their vengeance, so now what is there left? Right. So I think this is just sort of showing that Locke's not a superhuman, making him a little more realistic. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's annoying to read because he really does just sink down into this wretched pit and he's really mean to Jean. This is like his Tyrion phase in Dance of Dragons, mm-hmm. except it's like, you know, 10 pages. I was going to say it was his Matt Cawthon phase when he was all obsessed uh, with that ruby or whatever. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Either way, he's going through his emo fa- character phase. And uh, it's very short lived. It's short lived. It only lasts a couple of weeks. But he basically is just sits in a hotel room. He won't dress himself. He won't take care of himself. Jean is sick of it. And he goes out and becomes the leader of a gang called the Brass Coves. Well, I have one little nitpick before we get to this. Okay. So, uh, again, totally a nitpick. Doesn't really ruin my enjoying the book or anything. But Jean tells. Locked to get up and exercise. He says, hey, man, I've taken my own cuts. Lifts up his shirt and shows him the scar on his ribs. Okay, cool. Problem is, that's not really the injury that hurt Jean that bad. He damn near had his quad separated from his kneecap in, you know, what was a gruesomely described horrific injury that would have caused massive muscle damage to the front of his leg. And you just don't get up and walk that off on a ship over the course of a week. So is it one week? One week. So I'm not sure that's right. But you keep talking, I'll look it up. Well, when you put it inside the jar of brine, <laughs> you have to bury it in the dark. Wait a minute, that's sauerkraut. <laughs> So anyway, just a nitpick, not really anything uh, super important. But yeah, so Jean goes out and he decides that he's going to take over a local gang. And this scene I enjoyed a lot. I love this part. Yeah, I enjoyed this quite a lot. You know, and Jean's kind of getting, he's like, he's going to make the best of what he has. Right. And he's going to use his assets. And his assets are, I can walk into a den of thieves on their home turf, surrounded by 10 of them, and just start kicking their asses one at a time until until they kowtow to me and now they're my gang uh yeah and his line i love this so he 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 looks around so one thing 
that I noticed was that they talk about the underworld, comparing the underworld of Velvarazzo with that of Camor. Yeah. And he says one is a deep lake, one is a stagnant pond. So there there are some right people there, but they're not organized. There's mm-hmm. no kappa. They just kind of are shifty layabouts, basically. Yeah. So Jean walks into their den, this den of this gang, and says, who's the meanest, baddest motherfucker <laughs> in your gang? And a guy comes up, and Jean just... Whoosh, <laughs> knee to the face and he says wrong i'm the meanest motherfucker in this gang yeah. <laughs> this is my gang now yeah. and he just kind of systematically and very effortlessly takes over this gang and then he starts teaching them things and protecting them and and starts kind of and you're kind of rooting for him yeah you're like absolutely. yeah this is great this is this is what i want the, their lives to be now mm-hmm. you know and Locke just doesn't want any parts of it He's just like, fine, if you guys, I guess you just replaced all of us. It comes to a head. Jean ends up taking all of Locke's alcohol and locking him in his room. Mm-hmm. Three weeks on the boat, by the way. Three weeks on the boat. According to the book. I don't know if that makes a difference. Okay. They're three weeks at sea. Check. Check. So, yeah, I liked how they kind of slap, he slaps Locke around a little bit. Yeah. Not physically. But how he locks him in the room. Then when he manages to open the door, he can't get out because Locke has piled a bunch of crates up or John's piled a bunch of crates up. He says, climb your ass out the window. You know, if you can climb down a 600 foot elder glass tower, you can sure as shit climb out this window. Mm-hmm. Fucking punk. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about, well, the thief I used to know. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of goads Locke into... Being like, oh, yeah, yeah, fuck you, I'll show you. And then Locke runs off and essentially steals the entire town. (laughs) He does. He steals a series. So Locke finally, once he gets out of the room and he's like, I'm still the best thief in this town, drunk or sober, whatever. And Jean's like, prove it. One-handed drunk. Okay, I will. And he comes back with just a basket of like five purses, a bolt of cloth, couple loaves of bread (laughs) and at the end he pulls out a necklace that he apparently stole from the neck of the governor's mistress while she was sleeping in bed next to him yeah he's like i i I may have gone a little too far we may have to skip town (laughs) yeah (laughs) like right now (laughs) and so they sneak their asses out of town and john's a little like i was doing something here i was setting shit up you know and Locke's like, well, I'm sorry, you kind of goaded me on, and I, you know, I stole the entire town. Like, and he also says, but, you know, Jean, is that is that what you want? You want to yeah. be the Kappa of Velvarazzo? And uh, Jean says, well, it's better than being the lord of one smelly room like you've been right now. Mm-hmm. But again, it just kind of shows the dynamics of this relationship haven't changed. You know, Locke is still the planner. He's still the visionary. He still is the one who's going to get them ultimately to where they're going to go. Yeah, for sure. But John is going to to hold the place. He's going to keep keep them going when Locke crashes and burns. And it's just neat to see that partnership. That's what any partnership is like. You know, you, you take turns being the strong one. Mm-hmm. And I liked a couple of lines, uh, you know, at the end... Jean says, okay, like, we'll do it your way, but I'm an honest thief, and I'm going to do what I have to do to keep a roof over our heads. Yeah. And it was just, it was just, just such a funny little twist, you know, um, that he really, they really see what they're doing as good, 
honest work, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. And can we talk about the line? <laughs> one plus one equals don't fuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when can I use that in daily conversation? Seriously, someone give me like some ideas. <laughs> There's got to be a way. So... So one, so one of the kids says something they're not supposed to, and you take their juice away. And another kid says something they're not supposed to, and you take their juice away. And you look at them and say, one plus one equals don't fuck with me. Don't fuck with mama. What I, I can't say that. <laughs> the other thing I liked is in that scene with the, where he, you know, starts his own little crew, is the day after he goes and beats all their asses, he goes back, and of course, they're all waiting there with weapons to jump him. So he walks in with like the town constable, and they're all like, "Uh." <laughs> right." So these thieves are just—they're just bumbling. They don't have any idea how it's real organized Andy crime Griffith works. Show. It is. <laughs> it's the. He says, "How did it take you all this long? Yeah. to get the city watch on the take. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Golly gee, Andy! <laughs> now these can guys, I, the I can see with the southern pistol? accent. Yeah. No, listen, the ghosts are all like, Sir, the scorpion sting, it begins with a little bit of a burn, and then it drips into a fever. Hey, Lamora, I recognize you. <laughs> You're going down, Sean Tannen. <laughs> That's just me. So chapter two? Chapter two, yes. So at the end of the reminiscence, we see Jean and Locke sneak out of Velvarazzo, covered in apple mash, basically chortling the whole way. Yeah. And chapter two opens with Jean and Locke eating tiny cakes that are shaped exactly like them. Yeah, in their own likeness. I'm a little jealous, honestly. (sighs) I don't know. That's weird. I kind of want a tiny cake that looks exactly like me. I find that creepy. Pickled sex toys are no problem. Just going to say, I guess that's my little picadillo. (laughs) We all have our little picadillos. (laughs) Mine's in the nightstand. So Jean and Locke are, are just kind of chatting. They're setting themselves up for this conversation that Locke is about to have. Mm -hmm. And we, we find out eventually that Locke's, conversation is that he he's going to march up to Salandri and tell her that he's been cheating. Yeah. And that's Great going to get him. Great transition from part one to part two, by right. the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it starts out, the end of part one, it kind of outlines how the penalty for cheating at the Sinspire is death. It's not something you want to be caught doing. No. And Locke marches right in and tells them that he's been cheating. And he gets himself taken up to Requin's office. Our neighbors are setting off fireworks. Why do you got to be dicks like that? So anyway, so Requin has a collection of hands. That's not gross. Charming. He's not the first character we've seen who has a jar full of hands. Sadly, no. So Locke goes into Requin's office, and his he's. Instantly sort of trapped in this desk. Requin asks to see his hands and mm-hmm. Locke's hand is trapped in the desk. He is able to convince Requin that he's not lying about having cheated. Yeah. 
um, that he is deft enough with his left hand and he's able to perform some fancy card trick with his left hand mm-hmm. and that Requin's staff has has missed him cheating. He also tells him that he's been hired to break into his vault. And we he- we hear a lot about Requin's vault. Apparently it's really hard <laughs> to get into. <laughs> it's very exclusive. It's exclusive. Listen, not just anybody can get into this box. It's a vault, not a box. Well, it's shaped like a box. <laughs> These doors don't just open for anybody. There's no back entrance <laughs> into Requin's vault, is what I've heard. <laughs> no, for sure. That's not happening. So he tells him that he's been hired to break into his vault, but that he is tired of his employer. He's mad at his partner. He wants to turn his coat, basically. Yeah. He, he wants to, to defect over to Requin. He wants to protect the vault. Which is a ludicrous story. You think so? Yeah, I think it's totally ludicrous. Well, he's able to convince Requin of this. Yeah, I mean... But not Solandri. I kind of understand why if you're, if you're Requin, you sort of need to take it seriously because he also implies that it's not just about taking the vault, but that there, you know, there might potentially be a threat on his life. And so, again, not being a lamb that's familiar with the confidence scheme, you sort of have to at least hear the guy out and and hear what he has to say. And then when you've got got that emotional investment in it, I think you're more likely to to think of it maybe a little less critically. But to me, it sounds ludicrous. Well, and it's impossible for us to look at Jean and Locke from an outsider's perspective. Correct. Knowing their relationship and their interactions, of course that's ludicrous. But to Requin, you know, it's probably a lot more plausible. Yeah, yeah. But Salandri is not convinced, and she really wants to use her knife hands on him. She does. One of the things I like is they're going through, and they're and they're talking about how he was able to cheat at the different games, and they're talking about the I forget what they call it, but the first game where they played with the two ladies, Carousel, Carousel, yeah. And he says, "Look, we all know that uh, Ismila, Circle Lady." is not going to get easily drunk. He says, she's built like an elder glass boathouse. Did he actually say that? Yes, like an elder glass boathouse. <laughs> she's an elder glass boathouse. I knew he was going to sing that. <laughs> he put his hands up in that air guitar pose, and I was like, here it comes. Oh, uh, Here it comes. You knew, you knew what was going to come. But you didn't know how I was going to get all them syllables in there. No, I did not. Well done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Rick James would... No, 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 he wouldn't be proud. (laughs) So either way, Solandri's not having it. And I like the little moments we see between Solandri and Requin. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that they have an intimate relationship, but it's obvious that they are equals, at least in their minds. Yeah. Now, obviously Requin is the master of the house, but when Locke asks to talk to Solandri's master, she says, you presume I have one. And he says, well, I'm talking about Requin. And she says, well, he would vehemently deny that he's my master. Well, and we learn in the next reminiscence that it requires both of them to open the vault. 
right? So she kind of has equal power. Yeah, absolutely. At least as far as access to the vault is concerned. And it's at one point, Locke tells Requin that he wants to be his floor boss. He mm. says, look, obviously your staff is not as good at catching cheaters as you think they are, and you need a floor boss, and that's the job that I want. And he says to Solandri, don't worry, I'm, I'm not gunning for your job. And Requin is like, yeah, you're not. <laughs> Listen, when a man gives you a steampunk brass hand for your missing left stump, you know, in some cultures, that's a life bond. <laughs> Listen, Liz... What hand does the re- wedding ring go on? You're right. What hand? I mean, in retrospect, you could have like given me a hidden knife at least <laughs> in this bad boy. That's true. It's it's pretty lame in comparison. Why don't we have weaponized wedding rings? Come on, science. That should happen. It's about time. So I have one other question for you. So if Locke actually did give birth to a baby hippopotamus, <laughs> I love that. would it make him a better thief? <laughs> that was a great line. I mean, I say yes. <laughs> right? Because you see that baby hippopotamus, you're going to turn them pockets out. Baby hippopotamuses are absolutely the cutest creatures on There's the planet. nothing cuter on there the planet. There is nothing cuter than a baby hippopotamus. Like human babies are ugly, grow up to be cute. Baby hippopotamuses are the most adorable things in the world and grow up to be ugly river river behemoths. Look at a baby hippopotamus and be grumpy. I dare you. You can't do it? You can't do it. Can't be done. So Locke makes it out of the office unscathed. One line I particularly liked is that he told Requin he hoped to leave the office alive and Requin said, well... You'd be alive until you hit the ground. Yeah. <laughs> however many stories down. The other thing I noticed is that before he leaves, he says, uh, don't just take my word for it, you know, the stories that he's been putting out. He says, look into the activities of Jerome and myself, you know, and you'll see that what we've done is quite an impressive thing. So what that tells me is that he's been planting some sort of rumors ahead of time. Right. So... Requin's going to go out and find exactly what Jean and Locke want him to find. Right. And it makes it then seem obvious that it didn't really take Jean and Locke two years to work their way up the five levels. They've been doing other things as well. Uh, yeah. This has been their aim all along to get Requin to buy this story. Yeah, absolutely. So Locke escapes unscathed and returns to find John and tells him how it go went and they talk about the merits of fiction versus nonfiction <laughs> for a while. I enjoyed that section. I like it too and I, I like when Scott Lynch talks about literature and I, I like that John's into romance novels and mm-hmm. it, you know that that's a neat character thing. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. So as they're leaving dinner somebody walks up behind them and they realize what's about to happen to them, and they start to ready their uh, their weapons. When uh, they the person behind them, a, a female, says uh, says I know I know about your hatchets, and I've got a crossbow right at your back. And it seems like she she knows a lot about them. They look around and realize that there are a bunch of people who are way overdressed for the weather. <laughs> on the roofs and in the alleys around them, and they realize they're surrounded. 
I thought it was interesting that Locke said, uh, did somebody in a large elder glass tower send you? You know, which I believe is, you know, referring to the spider. Oh, I didn't think of that. Or Duke Nicavante. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah. So that was kind of where I thought that was leading. And they take them down an alley into a building, uh, manage to take all their weapons off of them, put hoods on them, and put them in a boat. And that is where Chapter 2 ends. Who are these people? Don't know. Got to read Chapter 3 to find out. You do know. I do. You know. Yeah, I do. And then, uh, so then we have the... The last section, which is our reminiscence called Best Laid Plans. Right. And I love how this reminiscence opens with Locke struggling to do the one-handed shuffle that we just saw him perform brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's practicing this shuffle and it's just the cards are just... Flying everywhere, yeah. So that was kind of cool. Scott Lynch is is phenomenal at having these sort of things that are happening overtly in the chapter that are just sort of like these echoes of what's kind of, kind of going on behind the scenes. Just these, I don't quite know what the word for it is, but these, you know, these actions that are happening in the foreground that really just sort of paint this picture of kind of what's all happening in the subtext. It's, it's pretty brilliant. There's a word for it that's escaping me in terms of, you know, what that is. He's not the only one who does it, but he does it really, really well. That without me being more coherent at this late hour, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but now trust I me. I want to know what the word is. I, I don't know. Okay. But it was good. And yeah, so this is when they arrive like into uh, Talvarar for the first time. So this is their arrival in Talvarar. And they already know an awful lot about Requin or Rakeen. Requin, however you want to pronounce it. In my it. brain, it's Requin, but please feel free to correct me if I'm Some, wrong. Somebody will tell us. We'll figure it out eventually. So they're basically, we're, we're seeing them lay out their plan. They're mm-hmm. building up what they're going to do, uh, their scheme. And there's also arguing a bit and it's interesting to watch them struggle and a lot of the the conflict in this book is between Jean and Locke. Yeah, so far, yeah. So we see them argue a little bit because Jean asks Locke if he's going to go back to to what he was. Yeah. And Locke gets pissed off and he's like, I thought I was forgiven. Is that just gonna like come and go or like, or the, are we able yeah. to move move on from that? Mm-hmm. And they fight, but then they make up and they forgive each other. And it's interesting, you realize that what they're struggling with is their place in the world. You know, they were built up by Father Chains to be a barista bolt through the heart of Vencarlo's secret piece. Well, that's gone. And mm-hmm. all the people involved were gone. Now and half their do? gang is gone. So yeah. what's the what are they doing? What's their purpose? Yeah. So unfortunately, as much as we like Chains and what they were doing, uh, they were sort of ill-prepared for what the remainder of their lives is going to be assuming they survive. So they talk about how much they, they're like, we just need a game. We need a plan. We need a scheme. And the scheme with rec when they're, they're using it to fill that hole they need for a purpose. Yeah. And I thought it was cool that they end this section with Jean saying, 
it'll be nice to be the predators again. Mm. It's it's funny because they just got kidnapped. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's funny. Yeah, and so that's it. Yeah, that's who the do you end think of those people are who kidnap them? Well, I can't answer that question. Who do you think they are? I don't know. I do have predictions. I don't know about that one. I mean, Locke says, you know, somebody in a in a tall elder glass tower, and the lady just kind of smirks and moves on, which would lead you to believe that it was Duke Nicavanti or the spider. I don't think that's who it is, though. Who do you think it is? I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's not them. I mean, the Sinspire is also a tall Elder Glass There's tower. There's a shit ton of Elder Glass towers. There's a lot of Elder Glass towers in this place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could also... He could also think it's a redirect from Raquin, Raquin, Requin, whatever you want to say. You know, that that they walked out and then Requin had him kidnapped. Maybe he changed his mind. Maybe. You know? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's anybody from Kimura, though, from Kimura. All right, so other predictions. All right, predictions. All right, I got a few. Okay. So my first is in the Dueling Greens, there were two characters there. Well, there are several, but there were two in particular. The older gentleman who kills the young dude. And the lady in the black dress who says, no, this is way better than dueling with rapiers, both going to come back. And I believe that the people in the prologue, who they're standing across from, pointing crossbow bolts, are going to connect back to them somehow. Hmm. I, because predictions are free, it doesn't cost me, I don't have to pay Mm -hmm. any amount of money for these. So I don't, do I? Is there something you haven't told me about how this whole podcast thing works? Oh, gosh. How can I use this? Think brain. <laughs> think. No, predictions are free. Just oh, lay okay. it out there. All right. So I think the lady in the black dress is behind the people who just kidnapped him. Hmm. All right. So we'll see. Good predictions. Oh, I'm not done. Oh, I'm sorry. So I'm not done. Continue. So Jean doesn't really betray Locke during the prologue scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think Requin is going to actually end up opening the vault for Jean and Locke, for Locke, I guess, himself. I think he's going to convince, he's going to con him, probably through fear or some other mechanism, to be the one to actually open up the vault. I don't think it's going to, they're not going to, they're not going to drill their way through Elder Glass or some, you know, they're not going to foil the mechanism. They're going to somehow convince him to open the vault for him. All right. I'm not done. Oh. <laughs> one, one more. One more. I think the flaming boat in the harbor during the prologue contains the content of the vault. Mm. All right. Well, we did have a burning ship full of treasure in the last book. Yeah, that, that makes me think it's less likely to happen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's Okay. I've already put it out there. It can't be taken back now. No take backs. No take backs. Well, good predictions. So I like it. It's not like we could edit this podcast nope. and go back in and change things. No. Nope. We can't do that. Nope. It's not possible. No. Nope. We don't have the technology. But maybe we could take out a couple of the Picadillo. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, 
There were a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> this, this episode was filled with picadillos. All right, would you like to hear what some of our listeners have had to say over our long two-week absence? Yes. I guess one-week absence. One week, yeah. So, we're sorry, but, you know, natural disasters. Acts of God. Acts of God. Winter vortexes. They named that thing. I have some cyclone bomb storm or something. I think it was a, it was a nor'easter. It's just a nor'easter. Yeah, whatever. But it was windy, guys. It was yeah, windy. it was. Windy as heck. All of our shit ended up in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> Top of the playground blew off. Blew off. Blew off. It's crazy. All right. So on social media, on Twitter, we had a very long discussion about why Conan the Barbarian is better than the Beastmaster. Are we getting into this now? No, we don't have We're to. Just I'm recapping. Just, I'm just letting people know that we had that conversation. We did, yeah. We did have that conversation, yeah. And then we joked around about it. And then last night I sat down to try to watch Conan and you came in and started like making fun of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I had to look at you and be like, I take this movie very seriously. Uh, you know, I just hadn't realized that you were unironically deeply enjoying Conan the Barbarian. And, and it, it and, made sense to me. That and, and I think that's where we sort of disconnected on this whole thing which i mean it was a fun thing don't get me wrong but you were like you're like no nah, man if you're gonna watch a cheesy fantasy movie watch the Beastmaster because it's more cheesy and you were like who's watching a cheesy fantasy movie uh, exactly I'm like watching i'm watching conan serious fantasy movie listen if you've skipped that part where he bites the vulture on the tree of woe if you just skip that like 20 seconds the rest of the movie is brilliant. I'm just saying, Conan's girlfriend gets killed by a snake. A snake that he turns into an arrow. Okay. That Tulsa Doom turns into an arrow. I'm just saying the Beastmaster's women don't have to worry about snakes. Okay. <laughs> That's one thing they don't have to worry about. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, the, the male and female lead in the Beastmaster are undeniably more attractive. Absolutely more attractive. There's no question about it. <laughs> uh, but I think I contest that Sandal Bergman is the is by no means a realistic female barbarian, but is the most realistic oh, female barbarian. Seriously, that Hollywood has given us. No, no, we we can't. Even, it's too late. <laughs> this podcast will go on another hour if we get uh, into that. Well, I'm still waiting for your alternative. I'll just, I'll just say that. You know, but how about anyone who hasn't had a bikini wax in the and a manicure? They're not playing female barbarians, are they? Okay. Did you know she almost lost a finger filming that movie? I, I'm not dissing <laughs> your your female barbarian girlfriend. Okay. <laughs> All I'm right. Just saying. Moving right along. We should move on. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Okay, so on Twitter, Tired of All Things, who is at blood underscore curry, says, I just finished The Wise Man's Fear, loved all the tinfoil hat theories, though I'm shocked that the armed librarian had you spinning your wheels. I thought it was reasonable to be armed in the four corners of the world. The road seems like it's a really dangerous player, excuse me, really dangerous place, plus rare books are expensive. Oh, good point. It's a good point. Yeah. 
I felt rob like a bitch for books. What's that? I'd rob a bitch for books. <laughs> Not everyone's like you, Liz. <laughs> True. Let's let's be, let's be fair. Okay. No, that that thought did cross my mind as well. It just seemed it seemed like the way the scene was drawn that felt like it was a deliberate clue. Mm-hmm. You know, it just felt like it was a deliberate clue. So um, I kind of I kind of went with it. You know, at the time I wasn't thinking agent of the Amir. I was just thinking, well, this is, seems odd. Mm-hmm. But um, but now I'm thinking agent of the Amir, and I still think it's odd. Not that I think it's odd that somebody would be armed. I just still think it's a clue uh, about Master Lauren. Mm-hmm. So um, tired of all things also says so. Uh, tired of tired of all the killings. Excuse me. Binged the podcast in like a week. Awesome. All the episodes or two weeks, I think. Um, so thank you. Pretty groovy. Said caught up. Love the ride. Just wondering if you guys are still married after the Lord of the Rings comment. <laughs> we so, are still married, though. Conan the Barbarian versus the Beastmaster really <laughs> took a toll. It took a toll. <laughs> we had to do a little counseling. Was that a tense the- time? So also, um, Kelly Walsh on Facebook, uh, he listened and he said, uh, just listen to episode 42. The silence after you ripped on the Lord of the Rings was priceless. I thought the first word out of her mouth was going to be divorce. <laughs> Kudos for building enough, up enough equity in your relationship to pull that off. Love the episode and keep up the fun. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, Jim Albright on Twitter is at Strider TB said, Hey, thanks for the shout out on the latest podcast. It's always funny to hear somebody say your own name and then think, Oh, what a coincidence. And then to realize, Hey, that's me. <laughs> he also says, uh, Ian Rowan for Jean Tannen. I feel like if you took Ian Rowan and you smashed him together with another Ian Rowan, you could probably get John Tannen. Do we have that technology? Oh, man. If we did. Because I could smash some people together. I'm just saying. You know, we're not allowed to have that technology. Because if we take Jason Momoa, and then we take another Jason Momoa. I didn't say Jason Momoa. I'm the one who said Jason Momoa. Oh, okay. And we shove him together. You know what would happen? Nuclear fission. It- it it would. The world would just tear apart at the core. <laughs> so that's why we can't do that. They were talking with Stephen Hawking and he was like, no, bro, you can't do that. You can't do it. So uh, Rodney Norris said uh, he shared a link on our Facebook page that was about an interview with Patrick Rothfuss. And this has been kind of news bouncing around where he said, and I quote Patrick Rothfuss, I'm an author who has tricked you into reading a trilogy that is a million-word prologue. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Matt Yeager, who is at uh, Crimson Seraph, said, yeah, that's basically what I figured. There's no way he's going to resolve all of Timorant's issues in only one book. And all the indications were that the story uh, he wants for Quoth was more of a hero's anti-journey. And there were a few other comments along those lines as well amongst Ours and some other Twitter Twitter uh, pages as well. So my take on that is bravo, kudos, bring it on, you know, as long as you can manage to write them in my lifetime. Like, he, he could write 
20 books in Tamarind if he wants to. Mm-hmm. Just keep cranking them out, man. Yeah. You know? Any thoughts on that? So, yeah. I mean, my thought is I think that I would say I think that I wonder if part of what is causing difficulties with the third book in this series is that it is definitely a trilogy. There's no option yeah. for him to spin it out into a fourth. I don't know. I'm completely pulling this out of my ass because I've never written a trilogy and I don't know Patrick Rothfuss at all. But I wonder if that's part of the problem. I mean, he's definitely set it up. So it is a it is day three. Like it's got to be in one book. And uh, I hopefully in future series you know that won't be going on he can just kind of write what he wants to write let things go where they're meant to go i think that's absolutely the case i mean even even as far back as tolkien he says you know the the tale grows in the telling Mm -hmm. you know and i'm sure that patrick rothfuss just like george r R. martin had very defined plans for how he wanted this all to play out and end but in the execution you know things begin to to grow and get better and refined and carry more weight and you know these all these things start to happen and i'm sure he's trying to figure out how do i tell all of the tales all the story that's in my head when i've got this very defined trilogy that i have to deal with you know and i'm sure he's that's a part of what his considerations are how do i how do i tell all the story i don't i can't tell all the story in this one book. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm sure that's a part of it. I'm sure it is. Uh, Katrina Knudsen on Facebook. God, I hope that's how you pronounce that last name. I apologize. I uh, just finished episode 29 and I'm excited to move into reading lies for the first time with you. albeit way behind you in real time, but I hope it's okay if I post just one more King killer thing. It is clearly because we keep talking about it. Uh, yeah. Keep the King killer questions and comments. Coming, yeah. Keep cause... them coming. You can ask us questions about anything. That's what we're yep, here for. Pretty much anything. We talked about pickled dildos. You think there's any topic that's off limits to us? There are zero topics off limits to us. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, you are a okay. Um, but I was surprised uh, that you guys didn't mention the last chapter of the story within a story where you all speculated that Hem poisoned the Chancellor was titled Folly which is also the name of the sword that hangs above Coates' bar. I know it was titled Folly because they drank to Hem's Folly, but I'm thinking that it's not coincidence, and Pat may have put that there for a reason. I also can't bring myself to think that it's Hem's sword. What do you make of this? So, for me, I don't I don't know that I would speculate that Hem poisoned the Chancellor. I think that the Amir poisoned him. Because he was starting to teach Quoth Yilish. And there is something that has to do with the Yilish language that ties it to opening the box, which I speculate has the key to the doors of stone behind which the baddest mother shaper of them all is locked. Yeah, correct. So that's my that's my theory. And him getting made chancellor was just bad luck or or who knows, whatever. But really it was they don't want Quoth learning anything that could help him open that box. No, absolutely. No, and I think we're in agreement that that folly, you know, folly in the sword is much more significant than Hem's folly. Like I, I think we're in I think we're in agreement there. Yep. All right. Theo says, well, 
since so we didn't have a podcast out last week because of all the weather related stuff and we didn't have power for days and we kind of jumped into our week and then we we were really kind of not on social media a lot and so people didn't hear from us so theo reached out and he was like i hope it's nothing more serious than a week-long power outage to keep you guys from us you know, I think it was like, do I have to call the cops? I mean, are you guys okay? Like, <laughs> we had no electricity. Yeah, for a while, it so, sucked. It did, but we got through it. And then, no, we're here. We're good. We're good. So it was touch and go with the kids there, like about six hours without Wi-Fi, and they were like, I remember their faces when that. <laughs> I was like, no, there's, you know, they pull out their their tablets or whatever, yeah, yeah. and they're charged up because I charged everything. You know, when we uh-huh. heard that the power might go out, and then they were like. What do you mean? It there's no Wi-Fi, and I they're was like, like "Well, they're I'm like, but look, it has battery." <laughs> explaining to them how things work, and they're like, "Okay, well, who do we need to call to get this fixed?" And I was like, "We can't call anyone right now. Like, the top of the playground just blew off. Look outside." <laughs> they were like, "But they just the kept tree- being like, but what do you? But what do you mean? <laughs> the trees are all diagonal. There's no electricity. <laughs> it's not an issue. We'll just turn on what your do you hotspot. Mean it's not fixed." <laughs> No. <laughs> no, you don't. No, man, you don't get it. Just do something else. I swear our eldest child like eight times was like, did you call yet? We we're like, call who? Like, <laughs> 20 Lay minutes on a later. Bicycle just blew past. Like, yeah. There's no one to call. I just saw the neighbor's dog, not the immediate neighbor's dog, but the neighbor's house five doors down dog fly past our window. Like, Oh, they didn't think they were going to make it. No, I didn't think they were going to make it either. I was proud of them. They pulled through. I didn't think they were going to survive me. <laughs> but we did. But we did. But we did. So uh, Theo also says, also says about this section that we read, because he's reading along with us. So he said, prolo- about the prologue, he says, come on, John's playing the bad guy with the bad guy here. Excuse me. John is playing with the bad guys here, right? I mean, we all felt that. Or on the vague chance he isn't, there's a really good reason, and the person who sent the two crossbow dudes is actually very reasonable, and Locke is just being an ass. Well, we know Locke can be an ass sometimes. We do know that. We do know that. Uh, chapter one, he says, that was really creepy with the Bonds Mage, but in general, a good chapter. Uh, the next one, the reminiscence said, not so hot about it, um, although it was never dull. I just basically was a bit unsure about Locke's complete descent into depression. Uh, he sort of felt like it was plot convenient, because he, like me, thinks it's a setup to make the prologue more realistic. But chapter two, oh my goodness, he loved the fake arm that turned into a weapon. Said Lynch is so into this James Bond, and it's great. Uh, This chapter was basically wall-to-wall great fun. And then he has a prediction. He said, um, Lynch is going to play with the classic uh, Yahimbo, a fistful of doctor, uh, excuse me, fistful of dollars, last man standing story, and have Locke and Jean play off two sets of bad guys against each other. Which, that's good. I mean, it looks like it could be setting up for that very much so. It also makes sense to me, too, because I can see that 
that other set of bad guys being the tool that Locke uses to get uh, Raquin, Raquin, I still want to say Raquin, to open up the vault. I like that prediction. I like it, yeah. So anything else? No, I like it. Me too, me too. So next week, we read chapters three, four, and five. Yes. And the reminiscences, the remini, reminisci. Reminiscences. Reminiscences in between. You can find us on Twitter at the D&D Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Don't forget to join our Facebook page, excuse me, our Facebook group page, so you can chat with us and all of your fellow members of the Duke and Duchess community, and also on our website at thedukeandduchesspodcast.com. I do want to let folks know, if you have been accessing the podcast through the URL dukeandduchesspodcast.com instead of the dukeandduchesspodcast.com, you're going to have to cut that shit out because I paid for two two domains and then I realized I didn't want to pay for two domains anymore. So make sure you go to the right website, which is the dukeandduchesspodcast.com. But say it in a nice way. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I come across like a jerk and I really don't intend to. But seriously, guys, cut that shit out. But cut it out. Shit's not cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) We are on a limited budget here at the nonprofit dukeandduchesspodcast.com. All right, good night, everybody. Good night. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find CasterQuest on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at esopodcast.com.